You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Muddy Water shows renewed activity. No zero days and no exotic malware, just clever approaches and determined social engineering. Spam is serving up payloads that exploit an old Microsoft Office vulnerability. Russian-sponsored disinformation has been romping freely through YouTube. Some back and forth over Huawei. Washington isn't relenting, but some relief for U.S. companies may be forthcoming. And United Technologies has agreed to acquire Raytheon. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, June 10th, 2019. Trend Micro, which increasingly seems to be playing Captain Ahab to Tehran's white whale, but in a good way, has more on the muddy water actor. There's been a resurgence in activity by the threat campaign. The latest round of phishing targets appear to have been in the Turkish government and Jordanian universities. The approach in these cases involved the use of compromised credentials, as opposed to the spoofed identities noticed in earlier rounds. There are new technical developments in Muddy Waters' activity. A new PowerShell-based multi-stage backdoor, PowerStats version 3, and some new post-exploitation tools, for example. But Trend Micro, in their closing summary, points out that Muddy Waters seems to have access to neither zero-days nor advanced malware yet it manages to compromise its targets and get the job done without needing either. If zero days are your bugaboo, don't overlook the threat that shifting and clever scheming can present. Muddy water doesn't. Microsoft warned late Friday that a wave of spam is carrying malicious RTF files that exploit CVE 2017-11882, a vulnerability in an older version of Microsoft Office's Equation Editor. That this is worrisome news shows that many users continue to be laggards with respect to patching. The vulnerability in question was fixed back in 2017. All you need to do to be safe is make sure your software is up to date. Speaking of patches, tomorrow is Patch Tuesday, and the industry expects the customary round of fixes from Microsoft and Adobe. Stay tuned. Russian-operated YouTube channels are freely spreading tabloid-esque disinformation that successfully evades YouTube's content moderation. NTV and Russia24 were among the sources of stories that Reuters says 
ranged from lurid accounts of, quote, a U.S. politician covering up a human organ harvesting ring to the economic collapse of Scandinavian countries, end quote. There are a few things the Reuters story notes. First, contrary to YouTube's stated policies, the content was not labeled as state-sponsored. It is now, but that's after some media-on-media nudging. And second, the 26 channels drew about 9 billion views between January 2017 and December 2018, which is certainly a respectable number of views and a dispiriting suggestion of the worldwide appetite for this sort of thing. Finally, there was a commercial dimension to all those views. Omelas, the online research firm that sourced the Reuters story, estimates that the Moscow baloney may have pulled in as much as $58 million from ads, some of that from Western advertisers who are innocently trying to reach a news-downloading audience. What does that mean under standard YouTube ad revenue sharing rates? The Russians would have got between $7 million and $32 million, with between $6 million and $26 million going to YouTube itself. From the Russian point of view, that's probably just gravy on the side of an information operations main course, but still, it's enough to keep a couple of decent-sized front businesses up and running. A spokesperson for YouTube explained matters to Reuters as follows, quote, We don't treat state-funded media channels differently than other channels when it comes to monetization, as long as they comply with all of our other policies. And we give users context for news-related content, including by labeling government-funded news sources. Quote. Reuters glosses this as saying that, quote, YouTube said it welcomes governments in its revenue-sharing program and does not bar disinformation, end quote. We mention this not to bash YouTube, but to offer a kind of reality check concerning the state of content moderation. YouTube and other social media have been on a bit of an algorithmic high horse for the last couple of months about the content they would and would not tolerate and the measures they put in place to clean the Internet's cognitive house. Apparently, that high horse is shrinking a bit, down from deplatforming to a promise of compliance plus context. In fairness to social media, they've been getting a fair bit of stick from various governments, including the governments of relatively free states, about the stuff they allow to transit their platforms. And it's also true that content moderation is difficult, expensive, and quite possibly impossible to automate. There's been some backing and filling over Huawei blacklisting since late last week. It continued over the weekend. The GSM Association, a major mobile communications industry group, estimates that the cost of ejecting Huawei from 5G infrastructure could cost EU mobile carriers perhaps as much as 52 billion euros and might delay the fielding of 5G service by as much as 18 months. For their own part, U.S. tech companies, especially semiconductor manufacturers, have expressed concern over the ban's hit on exports. This is in some circles being pitched as a security matter, with the economic health of the export market being tied to the economic health of the defense industrial base. Some of those companies may have found sympathetic ears in both the Office of Management and Budget and the Commerce Department, who have suggested that it might be worth giving U.S. companies a bit more time to arrange coping mechanisms for the effects the entity listing of Huawei will have on them. The Department of Defense hasn't softened its own opinion of Huawei, nor has the U.S. let up on the diplomatic offensive against Huawei, urging South Korea to take a similar stock of the risk the Chinese device manufacturer may pose to supply chains. 
Russia has taken notice too and has publicly aligned itself with Huawei. This probably represents an opportunistic shot at the American main enemy than it does any deep convergence of Sino-Russian strategic objectives. China's government is warning tech companies, specifically Microsoft, Dell, and Huawei, of the consequences of cooperating with Washington as opposed to Beijing in the Huawei affair. Those consequences will be, Beijing points out, very bad for their business indeed. Not everyone got the memo. Facebook won't be offering its products pre-installed in new Huawei phones. And finally, Raytheon has agreed to be acquired by United Technologies. The merged company will be the world's second-largest defense and aerospace integrator, behind only Boeing. Raytheon will bring significant cybersecurity capabilities to its new corporate parent, assuming they're retained once the acquisition settles. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. Uh, Apple recently announced at their Worldwide Developers Conference that they were going to be introducing a single sign-on option. Right. They're calling it Sign-In with Apple. Mm -hmm. uh, the folks over at Naked Security, uh, Sophos' blog, have right. uh, some coverage of that, which is... Uh, 
what you and I are looking at here right now, Danny yep. Bradbury wrote about. Yep. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not a big fan of single sign-ons, and the article talks a lot about Facebook and Google single sign-on. Right. Now, I have absolutely no reason to trust Facebook on anything with their history and their and their mission statements, I yeah. guess. Yeah, let me, let me interject just quickly. I, I, I will shamefully admit that there was a time... Years ago, before I had seen the light with right. uh, using a password manager, uh-huh. and before I think our opinions had turned on Facebook, before all the revelations that came out about what they were doing with our data, right. I made use of Facebook single sign-on for several sites because uh, it solved a problem. Right. It made things easier. It does it, solve a problem and make things easier. Yeah. Uh, and the same with Google's. I, I I'm more inclined to trust Google, although Google still does have the, the privacy or the the privacy concerns because they are a essentially a free service, which means you're the product. Right. And now Apple's getting into the game. Mm-hmm. My solution is I just use a password manager. Yeah. Right. And I, I have a different account for everything, and it's it's much more difficult, or they have to go through more math or whatever to to align my accounts across multiple projects. Right. Right. Or multiple websites. If I just willingly give up that information by having a single sign-on with either Google or Facebook. That's just been something that's never appealed to me. Yeah, I now, just don't want them to know who I am from that perspective. Right. Now, the thing that Apple's doing here, though, is that they say they're coming at this from a privacy direction. That's correct. Apple's addressing this from a, from a privacy direction. And uh, one of the things that they're doing is if your app in the App Store offers single sign-on for Facebook or Google, then you are required to offer the Apple option when it becomes available. Hmm. Little, little. Uh... Little arm twisting there, perhaps. Little arm twisting there. Yeah, this is nothing new for Apple. Apple's always been, uh, you know, kind of dictatorial in their in their development process, right, um, right. which is one of the reasons I've not kind of liked them. But I understand why they do it. They do it because their users are the priority, mm-hmm. uh, and I have a, a genuine appreciation for that. And I, I I like what Tim Cook is doing here, and I like the idea that it, if you're going to offer single sign-on, then you have to offer the Apple single sign-on, and then. Apple's going to say we're going to try to protect uh, our customers' data. Now, you're still faced with the same underlying problem. You are trusting one entity with all your login information, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this is this is a high probability event, but if Apple gets compromised, um, a lot of a lot of bad things can happen. Yeah, right. It's, it's interesting. They're they're allowing you to uh, to spin up randomly generated email addresses. Yeah, they'll let you <laughs> disposable email addresses. Disposable email addresses to sign up for these these websites. They are definitely going at this with a privacy-focused message, which uh, appeals to me a lot. If it weren't for all the other things I dislike about Apple, this kind of makes me want to go, hmm. <laughs> Can't help you out. I could see the turmoil within you, right. Joe. Yes. It's- <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if this could really be disruptive. I mean, a- Apple has a lot of devices out there. They do. And by requiring folks to include this in their software. First if, if all- they, they don't require you to include it in your software. They only require it if you a- offer single sign-on from other vendors. Right, right. Uh, I wonder if there's enough incentive, first of all, to get folks to switch over. If you're already using Facebook or Google, right. chances are uh, that that's a bigger thing for you to get someone to switch from something they're already using. It's a bigger effort, I guess. There's I momentum if, there. I think if Apple users see that it's available from Apple, they'll start using it. Because mm. Apple users generally tend to love Apple. Yeah, that's true. That's yep. true. Yeah. 
Well, I, again, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I think there's the potential here for some disruption in a good direction. Yeah. But I think it also points to this focus on privacy. I think there's mm-hmm. a recognition that people are hungry for this. Yeah, yeah. And and like I say with password managers, you run the same risk with the password manager, to be to be fair. If mm-hmm. you use one of, the, uh, one of the ones you pay for, or even the private one, those are all targeted by malware. And if those get compromised, they've got the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you're probably at the same risk that way for using Apple single sign-on versus a password manager, but I just prefer using a password manager. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, we'll keep an eye on it. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.